Alright guys, welcome back to the V Word. Vagina, 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 vagina. This is Dr. Jen. And Dr. Erica. And today we are talking about painful sex. How to avoid it, really. How to avoid it. Why does it happen? What can you do about it? How common is it? All you these know. things. And guys, we're also going to be talking to uh, Kelsey Lind. She's a nurse practitioner. She's an expert in the field of sexual health, and she's also leading the investigation of new therapies for pain with sex um, in the U.S., and she has so much to say on this topic, it's going to be really cool to hear from her she's, later, too. And she's just an all-around amazing person, and we're so excited that she agreed to talk to us. But first, the news. Um, I think I went first last time. You go. What do you got? I have so many news. One, news number one, Cardi B is staying home with her. I, I love that your news is about <laughs> Cardi B. This is awesome. What do you got? Cardi B just had a baby. Okay. She's six weeks postpartum, and she was supposed to go on tour with Bruno Mars, and she's decided, she met, put out a public announcement that said she's not going to go because she underestimated this motherhood thing and wants to be home with her baby. And I just feel like so proud of her for doing that and also that that's an awesome thing to think about. I feel like this is reason number 526 that I love Cardi B. I know. I love Cardi B. And as someone who went back to work six and a half weeks after I had a baby, it is way too soon. Way, it's too, way soon. too soon. And I mean... Especially to tour with Bruno Mars, that's like that's like the say, only thing that might be slightly harder. to work <laughs> when you're on a world tour. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. So rough. All the time. Um, I've got to cancel my world tours. That's my news number one. But you, right. can, you can have a news and then I'll, I'll do my other news. Okay. I'm going to interject your news with some other news. You ready? Let me just pull it up here. Okay. This news comes from New Zealand. So New Zealand just passed legislation that gives paid leave to victims of domestic violence. Wow. Yeah. So follow me here. So if you um, are experiencing domestic violence or intimate partner violence, you can, um, with your employer's help, have up to 10 days off to relocate, to um, secure funding, yeah, figure out... uh, childcare, all that. Basically just to reorganize your life in that urgent moment that suddenly presents itself. That's amazing and so sad that it's that common, that it needs to be a systemic... I mean, we know it's that common, but... So um, interesting you should say that. New Zealand has one of the highest rates of domestic violence in the developing world. They say that police respond to a family violence incident in New Zealand every four minutes. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. That's insane. And then, I mean, just when you look at, like, all of the financial um costs of that and and how that taxes their system they they were like well this makes more financial or economic Uh sense to to afford this to people who are talking about this or suffering from this um but also it's like a really good societal move you know Uh um and so one of the really cool things too is that you don't have to prove it right so how are you going to prove that you're going through this oftentimes that means that you need some kind of record um and people who are in that situation don't often have all all that information or or necessarily want to share it. So it's just this very, um, it's a really cool thing. That's really awesome. Yeah. Anyway, what's your your second piece of news? Okay, my second piece of news is actually applauding our American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is an organization that we refer to a lot in our practice, but also on this podcast, um, as sort of the, the home of all of the best practices in obstetrics and gynecology. And they just, they come out with committee opinions about important topics every month or so. And the one 
that's scheduled to be published in August is called Marriage and Family Building Equality for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer, Intersex, Asexual, and Gender Nonconforming Individuals, which is quite a mouthful. That's a really long title. <laughs> that's a really long title. But these are the basic recommendations, and it just makes me so proud that we're acknowledging the importance of this intersectionality and inclusion, and also acknowledging how bad we've done this, uh, badly we've done this in the past. So the OBGYNs, according to this committee opinion, should be able to do the following. Work to understand, recognize, and address the challenges of LGBTQIA and gender nonconforming communities experienced in accessing reproductive health care, including family building. Work to eliminate overt and covert discriminatory procedures and practices in their clinical spaces through creation of welcoming and affirming environments. Understand that members of the LGBTQIA and gender nonconforming communities may desire family building and achieve such through multiple modalities, and then recognize the preponderance of research that supports healthy outcomes for children of same-sex couples, and then continue to include LGBTQIA and gender nonconforming health and advocacy topics in medical education at the student and resident level. So I think it's just such a good like centering of all families um and all family building um in our practices yeah i mean i feel like in summary what they're saying is we should just be good human beings yes (laughs) yes but they're laying out some like logistical clear ways of how to do that which makes it harder for us all to say we already are yeah yeah yeah. like if you aren't doing this then you actually aren't Yeah. yeah so i think that is really cool all right should we move on yeah all right Let's talk about sex. Pain with sex. Okay. How common is it? How often do you how often do you feel like you're in clinic and you see someone who comes in and they're maybe they tell you that they're having pain with sex, maybe they don't tell you because who wants to you talk about that necessarily? Yeah. I think that I try to ask my question my sort of screening question about that is like, are you having any problems or do you have any concerns about sex? Yeah. But as we know, some people aren't having good sex and don't necessarily know that that yeah, is a problem. Yeah, yeah. And so they might say no to that. Do you know what? Like literally someone just asked me this recently. I was seeing her for some other reason, but she said, you know, there's something else I want to talk about. It's really painful for me to have sex. And then she just like stopped, paused just started crying and she's like I don't know why I didn't tell my previous OBGYN about this I don't know why I haven't told anyone about this yet but it's always been really painful for me to have sex and then she just like you know started opening up talking about it and she stopped at one moment and looked at me and goes is it meant to be enjoyable and I I know it just it literally broke my heart I was like yes yes it is meant to be enjoyable and if it's not enjoyable like the fact that you carried this with you for so many years and didn't even feel safe asking anyone about that, ugh, that's yeah, awful. It's, and I read this great article in Cosmo like a million years ago, which I think was must have been sometime like in medical school or training, but it was entitled, Your OBGYN Should Care If You're Having Good Sex. And I, mean, I feel like, they yes, of course we should care, right? Like your, your practitioner, your clinician taking care of you should care that all of your health is well, yeah, right? Yeah, but I think it's something that, like, even OBGYNs, like, even if you look back, well, still today, but, like, a lot in, like, previous decades, it's like, we deliver babies, we sometimes give you birth control, we take out your uterus. I don't want to talk to you about any of the other things that involve well, right. getting there or... Well, it's such, like, a funny thing. Like, we think OBGYNs were, like, seeing vaginas all day, every day, and you would think we would be even more comfortable talking about sex, but even amongst OBGYNs, it's not... 
as easy to talk oh, about. No. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, even like people we've worked with before. This is we're gonna get into this um, in a future episode that we're planning, guys. We are so excited. It's gonna be about. Can I just say it? Yeah. Feminist porn. We're so I know. pumped. I know. I'm so excited. But we'll talk about all kinds of different sex. It'll be sex, 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 right? P.S. This episode is now R-rated yeah. <laughs> on iTunes, whatever. Um, but we just even... E. Yeah, it's the E. You know. Explicit something? The V is for vagina, guys. Like, we're obviously <laughs> talking about sex. But anyway... <laughs> The times that, like, the amount of times people, even, like, coworkers feel uncomfortable talking about sex, and not just, like, vaginal, penile, penetrative sex, but, like, variations of that, like, anal sex. Yeah. How many OBGYNs do you think are comfortable talking about anal sex? Or are informed enough about it. Like, it's not something that's part of our education. It's not something that's part mm-hmm. of our training. And I think we still live in our society, which is, like, very shameful about oh, sex, yeah. very... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's very misogynistic. It's right. all these other things that we will get into. But yeah. so it's it's hard. So in when we look at statistics about this, that when we try to ask women in, in retrospective studies of like, have you ever had pain with intercourse? Almost every woman at some point has had pain with intercourse. Yeah. But when we say like, have you had sort of regular pain with intercourse? But nearly three out of four women say they have had pain during intercourse at some point during their lives. And for some women, this is a temporary problem, and we'll get into some of the re- like life changes that can cause that to be happening. Um, but then for others, like the patient you're referring to, it's more of a long-term problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk about the different kinds of pain during sex, right? Because oftentimes we like clump it all together. Um, and if you don't have a good command of anatomy down there, and even if you do sometimes, um, but you just don't stop to think about it in a systematic way. It's just this big mystery box. But really, just like the, I mean, you have so many different um, portions or aspects of your anatomy, there you can basically experience pain because of something going on at every single right. level. So starting at the very beginning, um, pain with penetration or right at the outside. Sometimes we talk about something called um, vulvodynia or just this idea that even touching the area can be very sensitive and painful then you can have pain a little bit further um, up uh, at the introitus or the entrance to the vagina, like with penetration. Um, And that can be things like vaginismus or um, myofascial pain, pain uh, at the level of the pelvic floor or the pelvic floor muscles, the nerves. Um, And we'll get into, again, a little bit of what causes each of these things. You can have pain with deep penetration. Maybe um, whatever is being penetrated up there is hitting your cervix, and it doesn't feel good when you hit your cervix. Or hitting other um, scar tissue, either from a previous birth, from menopause, and not having enough um, sort of fluffy tissue in that area, for back of a better word, or something like endometriosis, which can really cause scar tissue in any part of the pelvis. So um, any kind of ovarian cyst, maybe you've got a big cyst that's being, um, that's painful either on its own or with penetration. Um, Constipation, bladder infection, there's all those other organs in that area. Anything that's like up and touching that area. I just want to say one thing too. So everyone's uterus um, can face a different way, right? Like the, probably the most common thing is that your uterus, like if you're laying flat on your back, kind of tilts up a little bit. They say antiverted, that's towards the medical belly word. Button. Yeah, towards your belly button. But some people's um, tilt the other way, like tilts back towards your spine. Imagine again, if you're laying on your back and it, it means nothing. And it's just like how everyone's nose is a different shape and whatever. 
But one of the interesting things that I've found anecdotally is that people who have a retroverted uterus or who mm -hmm. whose uterus tilts backwards can sometimes have pain with, um, quote-unquote, missionary penetrative penile oh, vaginal makes, sex yeah. because... Um, it's hitting the uterus. Yes, because the penis, when it's, like, deep in, if this is the kind of sex you're having, is hitting the top or the fundus ah. of the uterus. Yeah, and so for those people, I've said, well, try this. Try actually doggy style. Or just, like, any position that's not you lying well, on your but back. Well, flip, like, 180. Yeah. Flip them. Like, you could just be on your belly or doggy style, and all of a sudden, like, you've got this 180-degree turn where even if the penis is going up at this degree, it doesn't hit the uterus. Yeah. And I'll say that to them. I'm like, do you find you have this the same pain if you're doggy style? And they're like, no, you're right. Does I everyone don't. know what doggy style is? Yes, everyone knows what doggy <laughs> style is. I'm just saying, like, that's just not a medical term. No, but that's the style. Term. But I don't know what else to call it. I'm like, you know, you know, yeah. on your hands and knees. <laughs> and literally, like, I'll be like, all right, I'm going to prescribe you doggy style. <laughs> I love that you say that to your patients. I've definitely never said doggy I style to my patients. I legit have prescribed doggy style to people. With Does it work? Does it work? Yes. Yes. They're Great. like, you're right. It doesn't hurt that much. I, I'm going to start having sex all the time that way. I'm like, you should. Good. This is why Jen's such a good gynecologist, guys. I'm like, you should try alternate physicians, positional changes. And I'm like, girl, you need some doggy style. <laughs> oh, man. There's so much to learn. Um uh. Yeah, so, but the, these are some of the questions that are important if, for people who are having pain during sex to help kind of localize some of those things, and these are questions that your provider should ask you. Like, at what point during sex are you having pain? Is it with that initial penetration, or is it in certain positions? Mm -hmm. Do you find that it happens at certain times of the month? Because sometimes oh, yeah. um, people have, as different hormone levels will make sex more or less painful. Um, and then certainly if there are any major life events, particularly particularly anything traumatic, um, as we know that there are a lot of things related to, um, that re are related to sort of like our mental state that affect how we enjoy sex. And those we'll get into in a little bit of a different, um, a different episode, but we know that sex and sort of anticipation of pain and anticipation of pleasure are very complex, and I would argue more complex for women, and depend a lot upon your state of mind. Other things can be medications. Yeah, certain medications. Maybe you're on an antidepressant. Um, we, that's a very common complaint that some people who are on SSRIs or selective serotonin receptor um, inhibitors. inhibitors will complain about, and um, sort of in decreasing that serotonin um, uptake, you can also have a sexual side effect to that, which is decreased desire, arousal. Um, there are a few that you can try that don't do that. Um, so if that's the case with you, definitely talk to your healthcare provider. And alternatively, untreated depression also is not yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. super sexy so. inducing. So <laughs> we're not saying to not treat your depression. Yeah, either. treat your depression, just get a med that has a fewer yeah. side effects yeah, if that's, that's right. a problem. Also, which is something that we um, see a lot, is people who are on long-term birth control pills, actually, which can suppress your your own estrogen level. Even though we're giving you estrogen, it suppresses your body's ability to produce estrogen. So sometimes people who have been on long-time birth control pills have um, what we call atrophic vaginas, are really the same kind of vaginas that menopausal women have because of that lack of estrogen in the vagina. And so it can benefit from estrogen uh, cream in the vagina or estrogen sort of add back to that area. 
Same thing postpartum. Okay, so we were talking a little bit earlier about a couple of different words. Um, so let's start with, let's see, vaginismus. We hear that word sometimes. What does that mean? And actually, we probably don't hear that word enough for how common it is, but vaginismus is a contraction of the pelvic floor muscles at the opening of the vagina in response to a, f- a perceived concern, a perceived concern, or an actual pain concern. Um, it's this kind of like reflex uh, contraction. It can be sometimes just uh, cause the vagina to tighten and be painful for penetration, and it can sometimes block all penetration altogether. And we see this sometimes in pelvic exams with blocking like an entire possibility of a speculum exam. Women who have vaginismus um, often say they've never been able to put in tampons, they've never been able to have penetrative sex, they've never been able to have fingers penetrative, anything. Um, This is different too from vulvodynia. So maybe you've heard this word vulvodynia. This is a pain disorder that affects mostly the vulva or the outside of the whole area. When um, pain is confined to that area, so just around the opening of the vagina, it's a little bit different too. It's known as vulvar uh, vestibulitis syndrome, sometimes VVS. Um, and, And again, we're getting into the weeds a little bit here. There's a lot of different treatments for vulvodynia. A lot of this includes some self-care measures, which Kelsey is going to get into um, in a second. There's also the actual vagina, so sort of the um, whole like sleeve of the vagina, and that can be irritated from an infection. It can be irritated from a recent childbirth and scar tissue from that. It can be irritated by menopause and the decreased estrogen, sort of, um, for lack of a better way of describing this, kind of like dries up that tissue. Um, and same thing we talked about with long-time birth control kit pills can have that same kind of hypo or low estrogen effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so losing, using, making sure you're using moisturizers and potentially vaginal estrogen are sort of the ways we think about treating this. Yeah. I think, oh, and skin disorders. We didn't talk really about that, but you can definitely, I mean, I think this goes without saying, if you've got any like ulcers or cracks or something in that area of the vulva, that's clearly going to hurt. Um, or an allergy. If you've got like a contact dermatitis, an allergy to anything that's coming into contact, really, uh, that can really affect um, sex life. Obviously, it's going to be irritating. Um, we often, when we're sort of going through this workup with people, we're saying cut out anything um, that is perfumed, uh, like whether that's soap, um, lubricants, uh, pads, spermicide. pads, spermicide, anything like that that can cause itching, burning, pain. Douche, never douche. You know, we, you know where we stand on this. Don't ever douche. Don't ever douche. Yeah. No douching. So, what? Depending on the cause, we will um, give sort of your clinician will give you advice on sort of what to do. But there are some basic things that kind of everyone could be doing to have better yeah. sex. Okay. That I'm having painful sex. What do I do? Tell me. Doggy style. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I, knew. I just want to prescribe it. Now. <laughs> you should. You really um, should. They'll like you a lot more. Well, the first thing <laughs> your is your scores will go up. First thing is <laughs> foreplay. Foreplay and making time for sex, getting into true. the right mindset. Yeah. Um, that will optimize sort of self-lubrication, which I think is important for women, but also will optimize the everyone's ability to kind of relax and not have those kind of reflex yeah. contractures. Also, in addition to foreplay, I think equally as important is lube. Yes. You can't have enough lube. Yeah. What and kind, I th- What kind of lube? Well, I think one thing that's been... Uh, due to like advertising and then the great 
public health campaigns about condoms, we always think about water-based lubricant Mm -hmm. because condoms, latex condoms, you can't use oil-based lubricant with them or they can actually start to degrade the condom and make the condom less effective. But water-based lubricants often have other additives to them. There are some specific additives to lubricants that can be really irritating to people. So if they're, if you've had a specifically irritating experience, maybe check out what that lubricant was. Yeah. But I think more of this is to say, I don't think we talk enough about oil-based lubricants or just oil as a lubricant for people who are not using condoms. For So people who are not worried about protecting against sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. And I often recommend this to people postpartum or in menopause, particularly when you're really trying to make a dry area not dry Mm -hmm. um is to use like just an oil so like all you can use olive oil you can use coconut oil those are all things that are okay to be in the vagina yeah so oil water and silicone based and so as erica was just saying oil any oil all of it use it all water those are the ones you might have to watch out for the glucose in um but but the kind you want to be using with condoms and then silicone um sort of the newer kid on the street or on the neighborhood on the lube block on the lube block one really cool brand that i like to use with that is pure it's pjur again they don't sponsor us you could if you want to though (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's cool you can buy it on amazon or whatever and it's got this really silky kind of um texture to it that a lot of people like anyway foreplay lube you can't have enough of either that's right and other things like generally that are helpful with reducing sort of inflammatory things around the vagina and sex is like empty your bladder, take a warm bath, all of those sorts of things can be helpful. When I've talked to sexual health experts in the past and I'm I'm like, what are your tricks? Over and over again, um, the vast majority of what they say is all around um, like behavioral modifications. It's really just like quieting that inner anxiety making small uh, changes like whether it's foreplay or you know having a massaging each other before sexual intercourse using lots of lube making time for sex trying non um traditional sexual activity or like watching a sexy movie or we're gonna get back to the feminist (laughs) point yeah but um, all of these things of how, like, however it is that you get in a good space for sex. Yeah, I, I think we really can't play them up enough. They seem like little things, but really, um, we, you know... But they're countering this huge, absolutely. horrible culture of sex shaming that we have, so... Yeah. All right, so we'll take a little break, and when we come back, we'll hear from nurse practitioner Kelsey Lind. of all, I would say that a lot of patients unfortunately don't ask the question and a lot of providers forget to ask the question, right? So it's always really important to ask, you know, any pain or problems with sex. Um, And a lot of providers, I do try to train them that that's a really important question to ask because oftentimes people don't even ask. Um, And then oftentimes I'll also notice during the exam itself if it seems like it's a really painful or uncomfortable exam and what's going on and what their muscle contraction is like. Um, But typically if they do say I'm having a lot of pain with sex, I try to figure out if this is something brand new, if something changed, what have they tried to do to try to help it. Um, But there's a huge percentage of women that at some point during their lifetime will experience painful sex. And it can either be because there's an infection going on, it can be because there's something muscle skeletal something going on, it could be because she just had a baby and having all these other issues going on. So there's no sort of one size fits all. so trying to figure out exactly what the causality is and then go from there and try to work with her on that that aspect of it. 
so in terms of asking women if they do have any pain or problems with sex, I would say that number's quite high. I would say, you know, probably 20% of women will say at some point sex is painful. It might just be occasionally, it might just be if, you know, they didn't really have enough lubrication or foreplay and it's a really easy solution. Other women will say that, oh my goodness, sex has always been painful. It's never been an enjoyable experience. Um, other women, it's because they're postmenopausal and they've noticed some shifts, um, or it could be that they've just had babies and they've noticed shifts as well. Um, but I would say it's probably as high as 20% that women will admit to having some pain during sex either all the time or some of the time. The really easy solution ones are yeast infections can be really irritating, BV can be somewhat irritating. Um, if you're having what we call vaginal atrophy, meaning that you're postmenopausal and your estrogen levels have decreased so you're just not having the elasticity in the vaginal area and you're just needing some additional lubrication, maybe even some local estrogen, those are pretty easy to work with. Um, one of the more complicated ones I would say is vaginismus, which is just this in voluntary contraction of the pelvic floor muscles and it can actually feel like there's a wall like they're not allowing any kind of penetrated any kind of penetration to happen so like a finger penetration wouldn't happen penile penetration is really difficult and it can be something that a woman has never been able to handle never been able to handle a tampon for example um, other women feel like they were just fine and then maybe after having a baby they found that they were no longer able to handle it um, and so that's a really interesting thing to work with and trying to work with a woman on on her pelvic floor muscles and we think of it as being a little bit of um kind of fear association with this, right? So I always liken it to if I took a ball and I threw it at someone's face, right? That person would clench their face up. If I grabbed another ball, their face would clench in anticipation of that. So the vagina does the exact same thing, right? It kind of clenches up in anticipation that it's going to be super painful. And therefore, just by tensing up, it actually becomes super painful, right? That muscle just tenses up. It doesn't allow any penetration to go through. So really trying to work with women during their exams, sometimes with a therapist, um, sometimes with a, a psychiatrist coaching trying to work with getting these muscles to relax a little bit and allow some penetration to go through I have so many women that'll say you know I I've tried to have a finger penetration or I, I've tried to have my partner and I think he's too big or I think there's something anatomically wrong with me and I would say 99% of the time there's nothing anatomically wrong it's just that these muscles are clenching and not allowing for any type of penetration and so really working to relax those muscles working on kind of the fear component of it is super important and it's hard it takes a lot of work to do this so there's um, in terms of where vaginismus comes from essentially there can be many many reasons why um, sometimes it can be that women had abuse early on whether it was a sexual kind of rape abuse it could be that um, growing up sometimes in households we're just being taught that sex is bad and then all of a sudden when you're married you're supposed to enjoy sex and be active that's really hard um, to make that transition it can be because you just experienced some painful sex at some point it could be that you had a great sex life and then all of a sudden you had a baby and had maybe a little bit of tearing, it made you really nervous, you started clenching up more, it started having this negative feedback of a painful cycle. So there's a lot of different reasons for it and oftentimes it can just stem from something that was in our psyche from when we were young and just persists and it can be something that physically changed throughout our lifetimes and honestly it's sometimes we just don't even know, right? But we just never experienced sex as being a, a pleasurable experience so then we're starting from there. There's um, a few different therapeutic approaches. One 
one would be working with a pelvic floor physical therapist to really work towards trying to get those muscles to relax and understanding how those muscles work. Um, another option would be actually homework time where you're using dilators or you're using your own finger penetration and you're at home and you're slowly working on opening that space up. Um, another thing which is great and it happens all the time in the Netherlands actually and it has a 95% success rate is working with an actual coach where you do this exposure therapy session and you do each session's about two hours long it's typically with the woman and her partner and she herself is doing finger penetration um, and she's in the room with the coach she's there you know being watched on this but um, she's slowly inserting one finger and helping to have a psychiatrist there to talk her through the fear of it so it's almost similar to if someone was experiencing a contraction and you know, okay, it's not going to feel so good, it's going to be painful, but we're going to stick with it, and then it opens up again, and the vaginal muscles will slowly start doing that. So a woman is being coached through this idea of loosening those muscles and, and relaxing back open. I mean, it's so fascinating to me when I meet a patient who has had um, primary vaginismus for, you know, and presents to me at, let's say, 40 years old or 35 years old and is married, happily married, everything going well, but just assume that they would always eventually start being able to have sex and haven't. And I have multiple patients like this, but um, one in particular, she remembers her mom teaching her first about sex with these scary birthing books, right? These scary pictures of these bloody things. And so for her, sex just sounded so scary, right? And so from an early age, she just learned to fear this area. And um, and then she's happily married, everything going well, and then all of a sudden now her marriage is not so great, and she envisioned herself having babies and just hasn't been able to handle any kind of penetrative sex. So she presented to me, and she was very willing to work with it. And so what I typically do in my visits, the first visit with a patient who has vaginismus, is I actually grab a mirror, and I have them hold on to the mirror, and I do the exam with them, right? So that I'm doing the exam, I'm showing them how their pelvic floor muscles are working, I have them contract, I have them relax and they're usually amazed to say like oh my goodness you got a finger and you got a speculum and that's never happened before but it's just having them be able to consciously see it and be able to know okay I'm part of this I can relax those muscles anatomically everything is appropriate um, and so she was great she went home with um, dilators she went home and she just did a lot of homework on her, on her own where she was doing probably 15 minute sessions every day and just really really worked at it and got to the point that she was able to start having sex and have it be an actual pleasurable experience, which is why love what was happening in the Netherlands and we're hoping to have this happen at Stanford as well and there's been a big push for um, training psychiatrists and training OBGYNs in terms of working together and having this be a multidisciplinary approach for patients to offer this because we know that their results are about 95% success rate which is huge huge um, so hopefully we'll be able to work on that more here. So we know that everyone has different experiences with sex. We would love to hear from you. Send us your sex questions. Send us your sex questions. Send us your sex stories. Send us your sex no, comments. No, don't send us your sex. Fine, send us your sex stories. Okay, not sex stories, but I mean send like. Send Erica your sex stories. <laughs> Wait, we need to reach that. I no, I like it. <laughs> I just mean send. We're keeping it in. <laughs> send, but send us your thoughts about what we should be talking about sex. What do you want your gynecologist to know about sex? What should we be talking about sex more What are you too afraid society? to ask him or her? What are you, yeah. What are you too afraid to ask them, really? Yeah, let's get into because it. Because clearly, as you can tell, Erica and I are game to talk about anything. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex, baby. See you next time. Bye. Bye.
If you've loved this episode of The V Word, please head on over to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at VWordPod, on Instagram at VWordPod, and send us an email, thevwordpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.